This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This is True Crime XS. That would kind of be it in terms of her Baumeister, like the what people just listened to over the last multiple episodes would kind of be it, except for like the big, I guess, looming questions about like what he actually did. This is one of the creepiest cases I read for a number of reasons. Like, first of all, from the the perspective of like what kind of seems like it has to be the case and that's the fox hollow farm killings they pretty much have to be her baumeister now what's interesting about him is he stays in the news when we started researching this i paused the research at one point and even though her baumeister has been dead since july 3rd 1996 he has continued to be in the news we have continued to have victims being identified and that's as recent as like October and December of 2023. There were news articles coming out about him. Now you, uh, I started this and I, and I wanted to point this out. I don't think I really like got back around to, to pointing this out in the series, but you know, this all takes place in Westfield, Indiana, which is not terribly far from the Delphi case. And the Monin trail actually ties back to his property in Westfield, Indiana. Uh, at, at one point in time, Richard Allen, who's the suspect in that case was being held there. I, you pointed me down this crazy rabbit hole, which was these bizarre, like sort of extra media, uh, parts of this. There's a book that came out about this and a movie. And that is that Fox hollow farm might be haunted. So, I feel like you're giving me more credit than I deserve here. Well, no, I always find it interesting when we have something crazy happen. So, where this comes from, and you can find this on multiple sites on the internet if you just look for Fox Hollow Farm hauntings. Um, And there's this bizarre movie that's made. And it looks to me, uh, this is one of the most disturbing articles I read in all of this. It's actually an article from First Alert 4, and it's from January of 2022 by a guy named Bob Cyphers. He, he writes it out of um, Carmel, Indiana, is, is on the, uh, the, the slug line. It says there are ghost trips, and then there are really ghost trips. Carmel, Indiana, sits just north of Indianapolis. And in Carmel, ghost hunters annually flock to Fox Hollow Farms, considered one of the spookiest places in America. For $10, you might hear voices. Footsteps may be following you. Visitors have reported feeling punched and pinched. One even felt that they were being choked. It's certainly possible. After all, this is where Herb Baumeister called home. After Robin Fuldauer was found murdered in broad daylight in a busy Indianapolis shoe store and without many leads, detectives began scrambling. There was no vehicle in sight. 
One witness described seeing what he thought was a homeless man in the area. Another saw a hitchhiker. Someone saw a man running, and none of them proved fruitful. But then the phone rang. The killer had struck again, just three days later, killing two females 700 miles away in Wichita. Ballistics from both crime scenes matched. The gun was the same. The crime scenes were similar. A small store in a strip mall and women with brunette hair. Police in those cities suddenly had a serial killer on their hands. But how so close together and so far apart? Police were certainly no longer looking for a homeless man or a hitchhiker. Some thought he must have been a truck driver to make that long-haul trip. But where was his rig? It certainly wasn't parked in any strip mall. The Phantom Killer appeared and disappeared in the thin air, and detectives only had one thing to go on. Were there any other serial cases in their midst? Just a little over a month before the I-70 killing spree began, Donald Waterhouse shot and killed his parents inside their Dyersburg, Tennessee home. That might not seem like a connection, but as the police followed hundreds of leads, it was soon apparent that Waterhouse bore a striking resemblance to the composite sketch. And like the I-70 victims, he shot them in the head with a 22 caliber weapon. After the shooting, Waterhouse fled and headed north. His truck found abandoned later in East St. Louis, right off of I-70. He would not be captured until October, six months after the I-70 murders, and those placed him in the Midwest during the time of the killings. Investigators in Indiana, Kansas, and Tennessee all began trading information on Waterhouse. So he's coming up next on our list. Then there was Donald Blom. He also matched the composite sketch, owned a 22 caliber weapon. He had a long rap sheet. In 1975, Donald Blom was convicted of kidnapping and raping a 14-year-old girl. He was sentenced to 40 years, but only served three. After numerous run-ins with the law in 1992, the year of the I-70 killings, a psychologist warned that Blom had the potential for potentially devastating results if he wasn't supervised by a mental health professional. In 2000, he gets convicted of murdering a 19-year-old girl in Minnesota, and he is, as of 20. 22, he was serving a life sentence without parole, but police always suspected he was a serial killer. Then they talk about Neil Falls in this article. Neil Falls was pulled over by police in 20 states. In the spring of 1992, he was living in Greensburg, Kansas, about 100 miles west of Wichita. Falls was obsessed with military paraphernalia. He matched the early police composite sketch. This is They're talking about the I-70 killer here as they get to Herb. Police would question him about the murders, but had no physical evidence to connect them. Falls would be killed during a struggle with a sex worker after holding her at gunpoint. And after his death, they searched his vehicle. They found bulletproof vest, a machete, a plastic trash bag, axes, a shovel, knives, bleach, and a sledgehammer. They were able to link those items to murders and disappearances of nine women in three states, including Illinois. But the big fish in the pond was sitting in their backyard. And he was born in 1947. And Herb Baumeister struggled from the start. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia as a teenager. Friends recall him playing with dead animals and bringing them to school. There's actually video of him. You've seen the video. I, I know we talked about it earlier in this, but he's playing with a dead animal who's been run over by a paint truck. Like, like <laughs> painted in place. Yeah. Uh, playing is a an he's operative a, word there. Um, he, he actually is just... I think he's talking about the cruelty involved in the helpless animal being run over by the paint truck. And it was on the news. Right? It was on the news as a news clip. So he gets released from a mental institution after he's committed uh, by his father. And this is after he goes to Indiana university and he drops out. He gets released 
he gets a job at the Indianapolis Star, and then he gets a job with the Indiana uh, BMV, the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. And then it was discovered that Herb had peed on a letter that he sent to the Indiana governor. So that ended that job. So he gets married. He has three children. They borrow money. He opens his Save-A-Lot store. Uh, business booms and he opens a second store and he ends up becoming a fairly important person in the community and he purchases Fox Hollow Farms. Fox Hollow Farm sits on 18 acres of wooded land and has an 11,000 square foot Tudor style mansion on it with an indoor swimming pool and a riding stable. He's living the American dream except that it's a nightmare. So the way this guy kind of sums up the story is when Herb was his wife was out of town. Herb would frequent gay bars. He would go by the name Brian Smart. He would bring men back to the home. And by the early 90s, gay men had began disappearing in Indianapolis area. They all seemed to have a similar age, height, weight. Police get this tip claiming that one of the patrons who calls himself Brian Smart has killed him, has killed these men, uh, or it's killed a man. And they get given a license plate number and they trace it back to Herb. They search his home. The wife says no. Eventually, according to this article, he's, the, the writer says that changed later when one of the Baumeister children found a skull while playing in the woods. These events are out of order in this article. Uh, Julie went into the woods. She finds a pile of human bones. She questions Herb about it. He claimed it was a medical skeleton left over from his father uh, years earlier. Anyways, the, the Save-A-Lot business starts to suffer. The marriage was never doing well, and... This author says that it starts to suffer, but the truth is it was always suffering. Uh, Julie began to wonder. So her husband goes out of town and she calls the police back. They search Fox Hollow Farms. It doesn't take long. They find thousands of bones, uh, bones and body parts barely covered with leaves or sitting, you know, just right behind the mansion, the, this Tudor style mansion. They basically find 11 bodies. They declare it a mass disaster scene. And, you know, Herb somehow in the middle of all this, he gets lumped in as having killed at least these people and potentially nine more as, quote, the I-70 strangler on the Interstate 70 between Indiana and Ohio. Uh, Julie Baumeister tells her husband, tells the police that her husband made hundreds of business trips from Indianapolis to Ohio. He's always using I-70. In all, authorities now say that Herb may be tied to nearly 30 murders around the Midwest. So this is a serial killer in the, starting in the early 90s in Indianapolis with bodies all along I-70. And it's enough to pique the interest of investigators, uh, even with like the different sexes of the victims. Because uh, this guy's saying men and women are on this. But uh, Baumeister's slightly taller than the uh, composite sketch of the serial killer. The weight may have matched. Uh, light hair, the boyish face. There was no suspect to search for. Baumeister flees to Canada. He leaves behind a suicide note, doesn't mention any kind of killings. He said that he was going to eat a peanut butter sandwich and go to sleep. And then he put a 357 Magnum to his forehead and he pulls the trigger. So Fox Hollow Farms gets put up for sale. It sells for about a third of the original asking price. Um, it's a tourist attraction now where you can hear voices, footsteps. You can maybe get pinched or punched. You might even get choked. So this is an article about Fox Hollow Farms. And I would say this article pretty much sums up what the movie is like. Um, I don't actually recommend that anybody watch it unless you're just totally into nonsense. 
But I thought I would use that as kind of a bouncing off point to talk about Herb for a second. They never clear up for me in anything I've been able to find. And I've had a couple of records requests in on this case that sort of are either dragging really, really slowly or just aren't like, or he's just, they're not, there's no information available. I cannot figure out how they tie him to the I-70 Strangler case behind being, quote, Brian Smart. I don't actually know, like, this is complicated for me, and I was going to ask you how you felt about this. I don't think Herb is both of these. Do you? Both of who? So I believe that Herb killed the people that are found on his property. Yes, and that's more than likely all. I'm not sure that he's responsible for all these I-70 strangler killings because I'm not totally sure there really is an I-70 strangler. Right, and he's not the guy in the... I'm confused a little bit, but is the article implicating he could possibly be the, like, shooter? The the article is just talking about serial killers tagged to I-70. It's a little nonsensical, Okay, uh, which is why like, I picked it. He for I, certain is not that guy. Right. We haven't even gotten there yet. We haven't even gotten to the I-70 killer part of this yet. Right now, I'm just, I'm pointing out that like this article is written in January of 2022 by someone who has written quite a few articles mm-hmm. for a pretty good source. Well, Okay, because I was a little bit confused at first. Um, I was like, wait, where's this going? Okay, so I do see where the inferences are being drawn, but that is kind of, it's kind of a reach, in my opinion. It's not even kind of a reach. Uh, It's a whole different set of motives. It's a whole different... Well, right, because what we know about... Baumeister, it basically comes from a would-be victim who was who ended up not being victimized, right? It, you know, as this has kind of unfolded, we've heard basically what happened and what possibly would have happened if it had continued. And so the type of uh, killer that he was, there's, it's highly unlikely that he would be running into stores and shooting people. Right. Okay. Somehow, this has gotten conflated in the media where the, and I understand I 70 killer, I 70 strangler, Fox Hollow killings. Somehow, this gets conflated where the I 70 strangler and the Fox Hollow killings are all perpetrated by the same person. And in my opinion, I think it's almost impossible. And I'm saying that from the perspective of like, okay, maybe he's responsible for some of those. There's some of his early killings and then he gets this house and he's like, now I can just do it here. But several of these I-70 killings, and like I'm I'm going to tread pretty carefully in how I say this. The cops have the guy that did it in a couple of them and it's not Herb. Well, right. And – Unless it's kind of all lumped together, none of those cases are probably going to be solved, right? Yeah, well, as long as it's lumped together, it's not going to be solved. 
Like, unless well, they clear it based on, unless they erroneously clear it. Is that what you're saying? I'm saying that, like, at least if they say that, like, this dude who had all these bodies found on his property, okay, those are definitely his victims, okay? There's not going to be a situation where they're not his victims. But, like, it is almost better in the the mainstream media narrative that you go ahead and attribute all of the unsolved murders that you possibly can to this dude who clearly killed a bunch of people because they were found on his property and right at the, like it coincided with the exact time he was committing suicide, right? Yes. Okay. And so that brings this sense of like relief to anybody that would take a notion to, you know, look into this. Right. Yeah. And I feel like if they don't do it that way, right. Like you've got this guy, he clearly committed quite a few murders. Let's just say that like, and, and it's not necessarily wrong to say like there were similar things happening in some of the cases. It's just without that, like none of those cases that are unsolved are being investigated. Yeah, unfortunately, they're not for a number of reasons. These are victims who have like I could be I could be shocked that there's an investigator somewhere who still like has this stuck in its craw and he's trying to figure it out. And like, you know, I I question whether they the way all these happen and the time that they happened in. I wonder if they have evidence and don't know it. Um, And somehow I kind of doubt it. I I don't think so either. I think that this is the best answer that anybody has been able to come up with, regardless of who said it. It's a little bit baffling, though. It is baffling. And um, that's one of the reasons I highlighted this case. So as we close out the I-70 Strangler part of this, uh, first of all, Fox Hollow Farms is not haunted, in case anybody's wondering. You said that you wouldn't recommend anybody go watch it. I feel like people should make their own decision. I find it really interesting. You said something in that article that I didn't realize. Do they actually like have it running as like a a business? Yeah. That was what made me want to talk about it. So, okay. So Fox Hollow Farms being like this haunted house you pay to go visit it. Uh, I think a lot of times when we have this like extrasensory version of a case, and th- this is a, it's kind of novel in that you don't have a situation where you've got, you know, bones used as gravel in the driveway at very many people's houses, right? Right. Which is what occurred here. And I see it as this kind of coping mechanism because like what happened was legitimately so horrible that if you don't add some sort of light to it, it's almost like you almost can't bear the thought of it. And that's what I saw in that. Uh, it's kind of a documentary, right? Yeah, it's an independent documentary. This case has been, just, just to clarify, this case has been covered a lot. Uh, you can find it on the History Channel. Uh, on Perfect Crimes had an episode. A&E has a couple of different 
one-offs and episodes of like ongoing things that cover it. Um, it's featured on True TV. It's featured on Discovery or uh, maybe, uh, ID channel. Paranormal Witness has an episode of it. Ghost Adventures has an episode of it. The specific film I'm talking about is A Haunting of Fox Hollow Farm, which is an independent documentary. It's not that it's not entertaining in some way. It's still a little nutty. I agree. But again, I I feel like it's a coping mechanism. Um, I didn't realize they were charging people for it. That's a little weird, but... Uh, somebody owns that property at this point. That's not the Baumeister family, right? Yeah. Obviously, all that stuff had to have been disclosed. Well, I guess so. I, I don't really know if that varies from state to state. But so anybody purchasing this property would have to be made aware of what had happened there. And I'm not really sure. I feel like it could be intriguing up until the point that you realize that like it completely devalued your property. You know, that this could be some sort of way to deal with that. I'm not really sure though. I did watch, I watched quite a bit of, I don't, I don't really know what to call it. I've, I've watched quite a bit about the hauntings and the, the extra sensory kind of lure that this particular property Uh, has been said to have and man I guess I'm just like a born skeptic because to me it's all just I watched it probably with less of an open mind than I thought I had (laughs) you know (laughs) you know I've tried to wrap my head around how all this got together I, I thought I would be able to figure out how they got him to being the I-70 strangler but unfortunately on its face, the I-70 Strangler case falls apart in a couple of different ways. The primary one being that there's not really... I think you have a bunch of one-offs and then a couple of maybe linked cases in here. And I hate to say it that way, but if they haven't solved this at this point... I mean, they definitely, as we discussed along the way, they definitely lump and split these cases. They put them together, they tear them apart. That's how we end up you know, talking about like uh, Gus Cato. That's how we end up with this whole thing about Larry Eiler being in this. And Larry Eiler is definitely a, a, a prolific serial killer by all the evidence that's available to us, particularly with the crazy posthumous uh, confession letter being read off. Um, but with her, like, it's not that I, uh, he definitely would have had some kind of lead up to this. He could be responsible from, for some of these quote, I 70 stranglings. I just can't put them all together and make that make sense. And that could be a number of things. One, it could be hold back evidence that just isn't being talked about, which would be dumb 40 years later. It could be that I'm not understanding like the jurisdictional differences here. There's quite a few when you get into the fact that you have multiple states with multiple cities along an interstate and then a couple of other places like that they are sort of fictitiously connecting back to this interstate, I understand why they did it. I don't understand why they kept that as the I-70 Strangler like moniker they give them. I cannot for the life of me understand how they look at all this and – and think like this is all the work of one guy. They have so many different descriptions of cars and vehicles. And I, you know, I was looking through 
at one point, and this is sort of my final thought on the I-70 Strangler being Herb Baumeister. I think these murders along the way had piss poor investigations forensically. Whether they, like, I get they're like trying to save face at different points in time here. And they actually do put some effort into, like, particularly with like some of the younger victims, which don't really fit Herb, in my opinion. Cause like he goes as low as like 20, but like his preference seems to be like guys in their 30s. And like that seems to be where we land. I think that the explanation for this is that it's a cover up. I think it's covering up like a lack of having kept and cataloged good forensic evidence along the way in these multiple homicides. It's easier to dump them together. And here's an example of like, like why I think that is. If you look at the time frame on this, this is going to be right after in terms of 1996 being when they sort of lump all this together in 1999. This is right after we've had a pretty good look at investigators in different jurisdictions taking a lot of crimes and dumping them. And I'll stay, you know, I will always stand by what I said about Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Tool. And I think this situation might be similar to that. And I think it's because they don't have that evidence cataloged and organized and sort of kept up because they were looking at these homicides as being, I don't want to say lesser, but, but I, I think the truth is they didn't take these cases as seriously as they should have. It, it was, it was very much a situation where these, and I think of these kids, these kids who were being abused by adults I think those were the only ones that they might have kept like forensic information on. And if we were to look at the whole thing, like overall, and we saw a different investigation on this, I think the outcome would not be that Herb Baumeister is responsible for not only the Fox Hollow Farm killings, which like I can't make it, I cannot figure out a way that he would not be responsible for those 12 bodies or so, which, you know, I don't even know if we'll ever have a full count there because they keep going back to that property and they keep doing more searches. But I think that like, that's kind of it. He might have a couple before then. Um, I cannot imagine this guy getting away with, I think one count was like 30 some bodies. And then one of the minimum counts I read was like 24 bodies. I just don't think that Herb is responsible. Like that doesn't make him any better. I just think it, um, it's kind of out of laziness and convenience that we end up here with – and I noticed um, when I was pulling through the sources, I noticed he has like a, a Wikipedia article that now has on it the I-70 Strangler cases like affiliated with him. And I just don't think that's accurate. I think, uh, I think they, they potentially have some evidence that would point to who really did all of that. But I think there's a possibility that there was someone operating on the fringes of the, of the Herb Baumeister debacle that has never been caught. I also think that it could be like numerous people with one-offs, right? That's, that's, that's the other option there. Yeah. I, I think a couple of them, 
here, here's my thought on that. I think a couple of them are definitely one-offs. They did it because, you know, you have those type killers that we talked about, like Larry. Um, I think not everybody escalates to serial murder. Some people are, they just hate themselves and, and they end up, they do it once and, and they don't ever do it again, but they, they have guilt for the rest of their life. But I do think some of the disposals that we see because of the way the time frame, I think some of the disposals start to be kind of copycat-ish. Not that the murders are copycat-ish, but that like, oh my God, I remember there was a body at that place. I'll go to somewhere relevant like that and throw them out in this rural place. So I think that like ties into it to some degree. Um, I genuinely think there's probably someone out there with four or five bodies that has never been caught in that area. And I think the rest are like you described. It's a bunch of one-offs. And, but I will qualify that by saying that doesn't include Fox Hollow Farm. That's going to be Herb's. Ever how many bodies they end up finding there. Right. And I don't even know. Um, I don't know to what extent anything's happening there. I know that they had done some investigation. I know that they've recovered like over like 10,000 pieces of human remains. Or yeah. something like that. It's not too hard, especially the specifics of the the Fox Hollow Farm murders. You know, there's a pretty specific sets of circumstances happening there that led to those victims. I was hoping that at the end of all this, I was going to have it um, sort of make sense. That has not occurred. So, yeah, and, and there's a lot. Of, there's so much media to consume on this case, and like. I would say that, like, if you want a rabbit hole and you don't currently have one in terms of applying sort of the crowd soft mentality, I think the more people that look at this, the better. And I think that this case, because I I read that, like, in October 2022, they were doing searches out there. I read that they have more DNA that they found. At one point, I read they, they thought they had 17 victims sort of isolated DNA profile-wise. By the time this goes to air, I don't know if that'll change again. And, and like, I know I'm, you know, I keep changing numbers because that's what's available in the sources. And this is an interesting case because it didn't have what I normally default to, which is the ability to go through court records. When I don't have court records, which allows me to sort of narrow down and make a timeline. And I don't have like really clear cut examples of, of people talking about evidence cases like this, of this magnitude, they get confusing for me. And I don't think the media is even really clear on what's happening here. In my opinion, I didn't know if that was where you landed on this too. I think the media um, has most certainly jumped to Every sensational conclusion they can. Uh, and I'm just, gen- that's completely generalized. Uh, it's not against anybody specifically. But this is a sensational case that, you know, time has passed now because in a couple of years, it'll be 30 years, right, that uh, have passed since he committed suicide. And it, I don't, I don't feel like, Baumeister is a, like, well-known serial killer. Do you? No, I mean, he's been covered inaccurately in a lot of ways in a lot of media. Like, he pops up in a lot of media, but it's really not helpful in terms of information. So that's the there's, – there's the one aspect that, like, I don't think enough awareness could be brought to this, particularly because you have such an underserved – 
portion of the population in the first place. And I feel like there was such a disorganized attempt at investigation initially. Now that may not be the authority's fault. So I don't want that to sound like a criticism. I do believe part of it should be a criticism, but when you've got so many jurisdictions, multiple States, multiple cities, multiple counties, it gets complex really fast trying to make something organized and make something followable when it seems to involve this many victims. I have one more thought on this and then I have something else we can cover for today. And, but if you have more, we can keep talking about it. So here is something I read that bothered me. Jeff Jellison is the Hamilton County coroner. Have you ever read about like what he was doing here? I'm actually not sure. Okay. So uh, I think this popped up in the Advocate, maybe, uh, maybe advocate.com. In October of 2023, there's this article that pops up about Herb, and it says ninth victim of suspected gay serial killer Herb Baumeister identified. So I'm going to play a numbers game for a second, and then I'm going to tell you something really baffling to me. So ninth victim, which means they had the eight, right? Mm -hmm. So they identify the ninth. They think they've identified 11. I've heard that number quoted by police sources as high as 17. This is from the initial 10,000 crushed and charred bone fragments, 10,000 plus. Jellison makes some comments to the advocate. And they talk about being able to identify Alan Livingston. So Alan Livingston was a gay man who went missing in 1993 when he was 27 years old. He is considered to be the ninth positively identified presumed victim of Herb Baumeister. And then they qualify this by saying it's possible that Herb killed up to 25 men and boys. They used a swab from Livingston's mother to identify Alan Livingston, like a DNA swab from her. Jeff Jellison credits the renewed identification efforts to a phone call that he received from a cousin of Alan. So this is a cousin who says that the family believed that his remains would probably be found out there. And Livingston's mom was not doing well health-wise, and the family was working because they really wanted her to know what had happened to Alan. They wanted her to have some level of closure. So Livingston's remains become the first that are identified. Jellison tells the AP, like, yesterday was this emotional day in our office. We identified a person who had been missing for 30 years. That person, it seems likely they're a murder victim. Our first reaction was to celebrate the success of what we've done, but we very quickly turned to the stark reality that we've got another murder victim. And this, you know, he, he talks a little bit about uh, Baumeister in this article. Um, but, you know, he's leading a double life. He appeared to be a loving husband and father, which is not accurate and a successful businessman, which is accurate to a point, who's also suspected of cruising local gay bars for young men. He'd lure back to his estate and strangle them to death. Uh, police also believe that Baumeister was the I-70 strangler, a serial killer who killed 11 young men and boys. They offer us this again in an article from October 2023. It's been repeated. The AP picks it up. They run with it again. They do point out here that in 1994, Baumeister's son had found a human skull and the bones, and then... The other stuff happened much later. So that gets a little bit clarified here. Here's what bothers me. Jellison reveals that in this recent part of the investigation, they selected 44 pieces of bone for genetic testing. He said he was astounded that 
Livingston's were the first to be positively matched. And he, the quote is, what are the odds out of 10,000 remains, 10,000 pieces of bone? We selected 44, and the first identification is a person from the family that initiated this whole thing when Alan Livingston's cousin calls in wanting to close that out. And Jellison said, uh, Jellison said on Tuesday, where does that come from? He said four other profiles have been identified, and they're comparing those against DNA samples received from more than 30 families of missing men who may also be victims of Herb Baumeister. Reason I bring this up, they've selected 44 bones out of 10,000 pieces of bone. This case will not be solved in our lifetime at that rate. Well, I pres- did they say what kind of bone uh, they used? No. I, I know that this is uh, sensitive, but there are ways of sort of uh, trying to not repeat, right? For example, uh, right. I'm trying to think of if how you- to say this, like... You if know. you if you've done a femur, okay, yes, and you and you keep doing femurs, then identifying separate femurs because people can technically only have two femurs, two. right? So then you know that if you're pairing femurs based on matches, and you and you have what looks like the head, like a piece of the head of, I mean, these are small fragments, but you could even do the head of the femur bone, right? And so I imagine, so out of the 44, there was a total of four people identified? I think it's five. Five. Okay, four He's, additional. Yeah, he said there were four other DNA profiles to that were identified. Okay. Here's the other thing about those 44 bones, though. They're charred, they're broken, they're aged. So some of these bones were literally burned and crushed. Right, and it seems like those wouldn't be great candidates, right? But my question is, like, if you pick 44 out of, like, 10,000 pieces, how is it that, like, you hit five of the same subjects? Well, no, well, I, I don't know. I don't know how they did this. I don't know what the sort's like. I'm going by, like, this article... And it was just interesting to me because we don't really see him quoted a lot of places. People don't pick up on the math and run with it. This just happens to be in The Advocate, which is an LGBTQ paper. And that author also found it um, interesting. And right. that is uh, Donald Paget wrote this. Right. And I, I can I can definitely see – I think I see where they're coming from. I would have to have some more information to be really, like, astounded by it. But, like, it is – Kind of one of those like things that makes your skin kind of crawl, right? Um, yeah, yeah, it makes it makes it crawl a lot. Now, this is the same guy, this Donald Paget guy, had done a previous interview with Jeff Jellison, where he explained that like there were some level of fast tracking occurring because of advances in technology, and they had found earlier in the year uh, he ran a little blurb that kind of repeats everything I just said, except. It says that they identified two more DNA profiles in, uh, prior to uh, July 2023. So I don't know if these are existing victim profiles or what that they're doing. Because by my count, we really are up around 19, if what I'm reading is correct. Okay, so 
Uh, I and I I'm I'm sure I've looked at the article that you're reading from. I don't have it in front of me, but I just want to make sure that I understand. They're saying that the eighth victim has been identified, but he was the first DNA identification. He's the ninth victim. Ninth victim. Identified as like positively identified as his bones were on Herb Baumeister's Fox Hollow Farm property. Okay. But. He is the first one identified out of the follow-up investigation in 2023, at the end of 2023. Okay, so they did have some that were already identified. Correct. They had eight that were already identified ahead of time. They have two new DNA profiles that develop in the first part of 2023. And depending on how you read it, there's either an additional three or an additional five. It's not well reported on. So they either identified three more at the end of 2023, bringing a total of five for 2023, or they identified five more for 2023, which is Alan Livingston and four more, plus two in the earlier part, which could be as many as seven. And I'm kind of splitting hairs there, but my point is that's how little information is dribbling out. And they've also, by the way, this is, he's got a source here. Uh, my records request on this was denied. I, I was trying to figure out the math from the coroner on how they were testing this. And all of that is currently not being like released. They're, they give very general blurbs. Like I saw Jeff Jellison told WXIN they're now doing the comparison samples and they're fast tracking the process now that we have more modern DNA testing. But the bottom line is they're not telling us how we're doing that yet. And that gets kind of confusing. Right. And honestly, man, can you imagine having to deal with that disaster? No, that's like, like, that's like, okay. So think about like how complex and how many people were involved in identifications from nine 11. I, yeah, I know. And that took like, that is still being done. Yeah. Um, that's why I'm saying if they've got more than 10,000 bone fragments, they're trying to sift through, sort through. And like they're having to identify, one, is there even DNA we can pull from this because of the shape of the bone, the, the, the condition of the bone? And then, you know, is this going to be DNA that we've already dealt with? Right. Like, another, like another part of a body that we already knew was in there. Which I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying that would be frustrating as a DNA investigator trying to like continue to investigate this case where you found bones that were basically turned into gravel, I think is how you described it. I've seen it described that way in writing. That would be very frustrating. No, I agree. And yeah, I I don't have a good handle on exactly how they're, you know, picking and choosing what to test and, you know, how many re-hits they're having as far right. as them. Exactly. Like, like how many are rematches and, you know, so, so it's not just that, like, I have this problem with this case from the I-70 Strangler versus the Fox Hollow killing problem. Like, are they all the same killer? Cause I don't believe they are. But then you also have the problem of how do we identify these victims who are, just laying around. It is a terrible way for them to have been left. And it's a terrible thing to try and decipher it all. It's honestly one of the most baffling things I've come across. It is a, it's, it's almost more than, um, 
I think that even the most zealous um, true crime enthusiasts have a trouble with this one. I, I think that's I, – I don't think it's just the enthusiasts. I think it's also the actual investigators on the scene. It is very difficult to wrap your head around this case. People are gravel. People are literally gravel in this guy's woods and yard. Right, and uh, he walked away. And as far as he was concerned, he got away with everything he did. He did. He literally did. And he wrote a little note about having a peanut butter sandwich and how his business wasn't doing so well and his marriage was not doing great. Right, and to me, um, you know, there's a lot to sort of digest there as far as the kind of person who does something like that. Yeah. I, and like, I, you know, I, I saw this one interesting post somewhere. Uh, I apologize to the poster cause I, I can't quote you. Um, but they were talking about, it had to be some level of mental illness. And the only thing I could think of was, I don't think it's schizophrenia, but as far as it being like something is wrong with that guy. Well, yeah, he was pounding people into gravel. There's something distinctly wrong with that gentleman. I don't know that my position is firm enough to really like expand too much on it, but I feel like it has a lot to do with the closeted gay man. I don't know that it's a syndrome, but condition that a lot of guys found themselves in like during the eighties and nineties. Well, I guess that could be practical or like from a hate perspective. Feel like pounding somebody into gravel after you've killed them is a it's enormous rage and that could be rage against society it could be rage against themselves it could be rage against a lot of things but basically it's a situation where um any man who ended up feeling like they were uh not in control of themselves and taking it out by like murdering another person, right? I feel like that's the type of person who would have that kind of enragement, right? Yeah. And you see it a lot. And now I don't know what the explanation will be, you know, in 20 years from now, because I don't feel like, well, I guess in some places it could still be a thing. I'm not really sure, but I do feel like men who um, there were expectations set and they didn't, uh, it wasn't what they wanted, right? Uh, it can really do a number on somebody over time. Yeah, there's and there's also probably arguments to be made for the dehumanization and the depersonalization that come with that, where you're rationalizing like... I, I hate to say it this way because these are victims of very violent crimes and a very deviant mind, but they, they might be seen more as objects by him. Like it's possible. Yeah. Um, I feel particularly like, after death, I feel like to some extent they, they would have had to have been. Yeah. But this is, uh, and I don't know how you feel about this, like, like kind of overall the confusion that surrounds all of this. Um, This is one of the, and I know he's not the only one. That's the thing. So keep in mind, I'm saying one of, um, this is one of the grossest examples of how you treat people that I've ever read 
and I know there are worse things that you could do, but like this guy repeatedly to the point that we have more than 10,000 bone fragments sitting around in his yard. Yeah. Uh, that is the part actually, that is what would make me think more of like the mental illness thing. Um, because I think I've said before, like, you know, mental illness, uh, to the point where it becomes a thing in like a, a murder uh, case. It's where somebody is like, wait, what? What's going on? And so having bones sitting out in the driveway, like gravel, it's, you know, it's either somebody who has severe issues or, you know, he's a genius psychopath or I don't know, but to, you know, to have your kids walk through there when they, you know, leave the house to get in the car, it's kind of crazy, right? Yeah, it is crazy. And that's where they're going to play if they play in the backyard. They're right on the edge of the wood line near the bones because clearly they found them at some point. Well, Herb's case, you know, I hope that more of this gets solved in our lifetime. I, I don't think that's necessarily going to be the case, but I hope that it does. I feel like the DNA um, technology, if they can get a handle on whatever's happening, and, you know, I, I have no idea what's going on, but I can see where it would be like a tremendous undertaking, even to go back to it and say, hey, let's see what we can do with this, right? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I don't want to criticize, but I feel like as time goes by, um, the technology improves and they should be able to identify, you know, as many, as many of the fragments as they want to. Right. Uh, again, I don't know how tedious that would be. I don't know how many repeat heads they're getting. I can, and I feel like, you know, as scientists, they would say, okay, this is the point of, you know, where we're not going to do this anymore because we just keep getting the same people, right? I don't see how without sort of assessing that situation that they have any idea how many people those bone fragments represent, right? Yeah. Well, I'll, um, I'll throw a palate cleanser outro on here. Uh, got anything else on this one? On her? No. I read the most interesting nonsense the other day. Have you ever heard of a, you know, you know who D.B. Cooper is, right? Yeah. So I was reading this like little, it, I was actually reading a blog post and I can't re-find it, but it linked me out to a couple of different things. I was reading about this guy named Richard Floyd McCoy Jr. So, so he was a hijacker. And in April of 1972, he hijacked a United Airlines passenger jet. For ransom. And he did it in a very similar style to D.B. Cooper. So this guy was born down in Kensington, North Carolina uh, in December of 1942. One of the facts that the blogger pointed out was that his parents were first cousins, which I guess makes that like some, some level of incest. Um, but he grew up in uh, Coast City, North Carolina. And then uh, he ends up moving when he's 20 out to Provo, Utah, and he goes to BYU, but he doesn't do very well at BYU. And he ends up dropping out there and he goes into Vietnam and he becomes a pilot and a demolition expert. 1964, he gets awarded the Purple Heart. He returns to BYU in 1965 and he, um, uh, he ends up getting married 
and uh, this is still in North Carolina. He comes back to North Carolina. Um, he gets married. They have two kids. And he goes back through the Army but requests to go to Vietnam. So he re-ups on the basis that he'd be deployed for combat. He ends up being awarded with the Army Commendation and the Distinguished Flying Cross. Um, he comes back home. And then he goes to Utah, and he serves for a while as a warrant officer in the Utah National Guard. He's a skydiver. He's kind of a thrill seeker. But on the side, he's, like, studying law enforcement at BYU. He tells his wife and uh, family and friends, at least according to what I've read about him, that he wanted to be an FBI agent. So April 7th of 1972, he gets on United Airlines 855, which is going to go from uh, Newark, New Jersey, to Los Angeles, California. He's got 85 passengers, I think six or seven crew on board. And he is using the name James Johnson. But he gets on, so this is a Newark to Los Angeles flight. He gets on at a, a layover in Denver, Colorado. And the aircraft is a Boeing 727 that has aft stairs. So that's going to be similar to the aircraft from the November 24th, 1971, D.B. Cooper incident. And this guy looks just like him, by the way. So he gets on and he ends up escaping mid-flight by parachute. He gives the crew similar instructions to what D.B. Cooper had done. He gets a $500,000 cash ransom. He pulls this off carrying a hand grenade and a pistol. He almost gets away with all of this, but police began investigating McCoy, Richard McCoy, because um, a motorist phones in a tip. The driver had picked up Richard McCoy, who was hitchhiking at a fast food restaurant. He was wearing a, a flight jumpsuit and he was carrying a duffel bag. And he had also described to one of his acquaintances how easy it would be to pull off like a hijacking like D.B. Cooper did. So they're able to match him through fingerprint and handwriting matches, which people fall different places on handwriting analysis anyways. But he gets arrested two days after the hijacking. He was on National Guard duty flying one of the helicopters that was involved in the search for the hijacker of flight 855 <laughs> inside his house. FBI agents find a jumpsuit and they find a duffel bag filled with cash totaling $499,970. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that sealed the deal right there. So he claims innocence, but he gets 45 years and then he gets incarcerated at uh, Lewisburg, Pennsylvania in the, the federal penitentiary there. He, has access during his time at Lewisburg to the prison's dental office. And he starts stealing dental paste. And he and a crew of three guys, uh, Joseph Havel, Larry Bagley, and Melvin Walker, uh, they start to make an escape plan. And he takes this dental paste he's stealing and he makes it into a fake handgun. And on August 10th, 1974, they take the handgun and the four of them commandeer a garbage truck and they crash it through the prison's main gate. 
couple days later, there's a bank robbery, and Joseph Havel and Larry Bagley, they end up, uh, Larry Bagley, they end up getting arrested after a shootout at this bank robbery. Three months later, they finally find McCoy in Virginia Beach, Virginia. And so this is November 9th, 1974. Uh, McCoy walks into his home, and he is met by FBI agents Nick O'Hara, Kevin McPartland, and Gerald Houlihan. He fires a shot, and the agents all open fire, and they kill McCoy. Melvin Dale Walker tried to flee in the getaway car that they had used, but he gets apprehended after a short car chase. Two other FBI agents, Richard Rafferty and Henry Boland Jr. How weird is that? Which part? All of it. I, are they talking about Two Faced? What? When they when, he has access to the dental office in prison in the federal I, penitentiary, are they talking about Two Faced? I think it's the paste. Yeah, I think yeah. Essentially, it's are like dental like cement. Well, they called it uh, dental paste, and uh, if you listen to the FBI files, they talk about it in Flight for Justice, which is the D.B. Cooper story. They talk, they talk about it like it's um, some kind of paste to set dentures. Okay, so it would harden then probably. Yeah. I was just – I was like, okay, so I, I'm not really sure um, exactly uh, – so this guy was 31 when he died. So he was a young guy, right? And you have all this stuff happening, and then you <laughs> just <laughs> amazing. I, I really, I have this, like, I don't even know how to describe it. it. It's amazing to me that, like, these, like, guys get together and they figure out a way to bust out of prison, right? And it goes the way it does. And then not only do they bust out of prison, like, they rob a bank, right? Yeah. And then there's a shootout and like I don't know, it just seems to me like like incredible stupidity, like a complete waste. Like a whole lot of stuff comes together here, right? As far as the fact that you've got a guy uh actually, you know, flying the helicopter looking for the hijacker that he is the hijacker, right? Yeah. I don't know. It just seems like this is a, a very, very crazy story. It is. So here's how I got onto this and why I was searching for all of this in the first place. I know it's not like really related to what we're doing, but we're kind of between killers at the moment. So I was like, oh, I'll bring it up. The FBI thinks it's Stevie Cooper to today, like today. I've found like multiple uh, documents and some of them are released on the internet but not all of them i some of them i really had to hunt for and i was like do i want to do like kind of a different version of a podcast where i cover uh db cooper and i had read a bunch of stuff so this one radio station out in utah they interviewed all of these guys before they died so like there's fbi interviews that you can go and listen to and somebody posted on youtube about a year ago maybe two years ago and there's this whole D.B. Cooper, The Real McCoy. It's a 1991 publication by Chief Probation Officer Bernie Rhodes Jr. and um, by Russell Calumet. They were both investigating McCoy's skyjacking case. And that book posits that, so this 1991 book posits that Cooper and McCoy were really the same person. Now, Karen McCoy 
sued them. She sued the author. She sued the publisher. She sued um, attorneys that were involved, including a guy named Thomas Taylor, which was weird for me because Thomas Taylor was her attorney. Um, But she sues them all after the publication. And Karen McCoy is his wife. That's um, Richard McCoy's wife. So she claims that they misrepresented her in the book, um, including like in how she was involved with the hijacking that McCoy had been convicted of. And that they also misrepresented later events from interviews that had been done with Thomas Taylor in the 70s. So she shot an injunction. She was seeking an injunction against publication and distribution of the book. Um, The way that the Deseret News posted that, which I think it was in 2020 and 2021, was that she admitted that she had helped in the hijacking. So during the court proceedings for all of that, where she's suing everybody, it's revealed that she really was like part of it. Her request to prohibit further sales of the book were denied, but there was an injunction put in place to make it where the movie rights couldn't be transferred. So it was conditional upon the movie, including references to four allegations in the book that she was protesting. They granted that. So in 1994, three years later, they settle out and the, her lawyer ends up having to pay her money. The book's publishers have to pay her money. And the authors had to give up half the royalty. I think that might actually be confidential. But from what I can tell, the authors themselves had to give up royalties on this book. So they stopped doing anything with the book because of that. Did um, you just say that her lawyer had to pay her money? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Her lawyer had to pay her $100,000 because he was her lawyer back. She was being accused of being involved in the hijacking the moment they arrested Richard. Right. And he was giving up information. Basically, he violated privilege. But he also like did it so that he could get money related to the book's publication. Okay, so this wasn't the lawyer representing her. Yes. No, no, not in that moment. Oh, okay. The lawyer who had represented her in the 70s ahead of her possibly being indicted on being uh, an accessory to the hijacking. Right. Uh, So I would say that pretty soon... Uh, they should be able to. They've been trying to get his DNA from the family for a long time. Like from 2004 to 2020, they, it's revealed in a couple of like those vault dumps. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a thing called the Norjack memo that people can go and read if you want to know more about this. Um, it, and so the Norjack memo talks about a couple of different pieces of evidence they found related to D.B. Cooper that indicate the FBI has his DNA. D.B. Cooper's DNA. Right. So they were trying to get Richard McCoy's DNA because he's been dead for so long that he was pre-DNA. He died in 1974. So he died like two years after the the, uh, hijacking took place. Hijacking takes place in April of 1972. He dies in uh, November 1974. I um, I wonder why the family doesn't just provide the DNA. Because he did it. What does it matter at this point? I think he's D.B. Cooper. And I just think it's interesting that it's considered, quote, a mystery. He's the best suspect for me. It's not just a mystery. Like, some people go crazy over this, right? Yeah. I mean, it's insane, uh, some of the stuff involved in that whole situation. Um, He is a very good candidate. Uh, The only thing I would say is... It's crazy that he did it again, except, like, it's crazy that he did it again. He didn't get enough money the first time. 
That's the um, theory. Well, it, but to it actually sort of makes sense that like somebody who had done it before would have succeeded the second time. Um, I uh, <laughs> that four hundred and ninety nine thousand and nine hundred and seventy dollars in his bag, right? Um, it to me it. Uh, I I feel like I don't know how many generations have to pass, but uh, eventually somebody will want to know if their uh, grandfather is is DB Cooper. I don't know what the holdup would be at this point. I I don't know. I maybe his wife is still alive. Um, maybe. She, she feels like she would be implicated somehow, which, I mean, it seems like that has all been litigated out, right? Yeah, uh, so mostly. Uh, but the end result isn't clear on, like, what actually happened there. Right, I, but this, I don't know what the statute of limitations is on hijacking or conspiracy to commit or accessory to hijacking, but I'm guessing it's probably passed. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't think about that. Because um, nobody died here. Okay, this is a... Now, a lot of people, it it was inconvenient. It was possibly frightening. Um, but he didn't kill anybody, right? Uh, but if I remember correctly... Okay, so 1972, it probably would have been a... Full, unless they got him a federal charge I don't know about, it probably would have been like a five-year statute of limitations. But I think somewhere in here... I read that they had indicted D.B. Cooper in absentia under the name Dan Cooper. D.B. Cooper is wrong. That's still not his Dan- wife. Correct. Correct. So the but statute I- of limitations, that indicting him doesn't isn't going to toll anything for her. Right. Unless they somehow said any accessories. And, I mean, but then you're getting into some pretty dicey territory as far as, like, you know, being able to do things like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just thought, I don't, I, you know, there's not a lot. I, I do agree that um, this is a very good uh, candidate for D.B. Cooper, and um, there's no telling what he would have continued to do. Um, there's also no telling what he could have done, like, you know, uh, not having uh, at least committed the one he's convicted for, right? Yeah. Well, I wonder if they could get her under the Hobbs Act. I don't know what that is. So the hop, uh, it doesn't matter. It's extortion related to interstate or foreign commerce, but it doesn't have a statute of limitations. It would not have had a statute of limitations. I don't feel like, I feel um, like she's only going to have an accessory, an accessory type role. I mean, she wasn't on the plane. I don't know how, I don't, I don't actually know how like an accessory role under the Hobbs Act would work. I was just thinking of that because I'm pretty sure. So the way they would have prosecuted this, because like weirdly enough, hijacking was a huge deal in the seventies. You and I've talked about this before. It's never really come out on the show, but like we've, we've talked about it like at length and kind of ad nauseum between the two of us, it would have been air piracy, but that would have been a statute of limitations of five years. And I think I, today, if it happened, it wouldn't have a statute of limitations because most felonies of that like level don't have statute of limitations. It would be on par with like kidnapping extortion, not quite murder, but like everything kind of like one tier down from murder and they don't put statute, like all those statutes of limitations are, are 
pretty null and void. You can be charged with it whenever the crime is discovered. They discovered the identity of the perpetrator or whatever. Um, I know that they at least had a couple of kids, and those kids may have had kids, and those kids may have kids, and it's not actually that far back, is it? <laughs> um, but it... Um, you know, I think that they could probably figure if they've got a sample that they believe to be DB Cooper's, yeah. uh, they could probably run uh, genetic genealogy on it, and they could see how close they got to this dude. Hmm. Actually, it seems to me like they could have already, uh, if they can develop a profile off of it, they could find who it is. I mean, huh. it might take a little bit of digging, but I'm not really, I'm not sure that. And granted, I don't even know like how I know, except just the massive absorption of stuff that I've uh, reviewed. I'm not sure that uh, the ramifications of DNA availability have really hit uh, the average everyday investigator that is looking into like a non-critical case, right? Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure... The, now it's. I'm not saying that it's easy because it it certainly has complications involved when you don't when you're not looking at a direct comparison, right? Um, however, the way everything is set up now, I feel like you know they could get really close, close enough certainly uh, with the the rest of the information that's available on you know DB Cooper. Um, you know, they're going to see, you know, any sort of uh, genetic link. Oh, that person doesn't look like the person they saw or, you know, that person didn't, you know, they'll be able to evaluate it on other things besides the actual DNA profile. Right. Yeah. Um, but if they put it, if they uploaded the profile, uh, they would be able to be on a track to somewhere, if it happened to end on McCoy, that would be very interesting. So I don't think that that could be a holdup, except that I'm not sure whoever's got that profile even knows that, right? So if you go, um, this com you can also find like a reading on this. I'm not going to read it here, but uh, it's okay. It's, it's, it's fine reading. It tells you about the hijacking. It's on FBI.gov. They like under their famous cases and criminals, they have a Richard McCoy like section that has a couple of things you can read. Um, it, it, I was going to tell you this because I thought you'd find it interesting. This is how it ends. Uh, April 9th, a federal complaint was filed charging McCoy with aircraft piracy and interfering with flight crew members. Later that day, an arrest warrant was t obtained. McCoy was taken into custody by FBI agents. Agents examined the accused's home under a search warrant and uncovered various articles of skydiving equipment, an electric typewriter with key impressions that matched those on the typed hijacking instructions, $499,970 in U.S. currency. A federal grand jury in Salt Lake City indicted McCoy uh, five days later on April the 14th. Two months later, McCoy was found to have acted alone. He was tried in the U.S. District Court, found guilty despite his claim of innocence. He was subsequently sentenced to a term of 45 years. McCoy appealed the decision to the U.S. Supreme Court, which denied his petition on October 9th, 1973. They don't mention the fact that FBI agents shot him later. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> I don't have anything else on this. You guys can definitely go check that one out. It's on FBI.gov. He may have a Wikipedia page that you can find. Um, 
it, that is the best suspect I've ever seen for DB Cooper because he does it six months later. He's either an interesting copycat or he's the guy. But like somebody that does that twice in a couple. Now he did. He would have. So if it is him, right? He got yeah. caught the second time, right? Right. Um, and so he presses luck, uh, and it didn't pan out. But like, I just. As I sit here and we're recording our podcast and I think about like, oh, this is on my to-do list today. I need to figure out how to hijack an airplane, get hundreds of thousands of dollars, parachute off of it. Like none of that stuff ever crosses my mind. And then to think that this dude did it twice, like in a very short amount of time. I I get that it's like. I get it, it's a little much, but like it's not it? impossible. I mean, if you do it the first time and you're successful, then why not do it again? Especially when you find out like your wife really likes to spend money and you didn't get enough. That's kind of what I mean. Yeah, that's what it looks like. Because there's a very there's a very special uh, niche market for people who are capable of pulling that crime off. <laughs> right? Well. And and the fact that you got to have a certain set of skills. I it's it's a certain set of skills mixed with a certain attitude and and I would say a certain level of confidence. And okay, so now let, I just want to be clear. McCoy did uh jump off the plane, right? Yeah. Okay. Has that happened again before ever? Besides, oh, I don't. Oh, I don't know. I don't. uh, Yes, it has happened. Not like this. This is a. uh, This is these two instances are pretty unique. Not a hundred percent unique, but pretty unique in their overall. Like what happened? Like the whole thing. Like the whole setup. Where and so to me, like it is not a normal like. I would say that it is statistically more likely it is this dude than it's not him. Yeah. All and right. that would crush a lot of people, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening today. We'll see you next time. All right, so I'm going to tell you guys uh, a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. Now, Labrati Creations sponsors our show, and you can always use the, the Crime XS code there. Um, you can also just message them uh, at uh, Labrati Creations, and they will generally do something for the people who come from True Crime XS. They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show. And that code is CRIMEXS at LabradiCreations.com. The first new advertisers that we have, and I've, I've selected all of these guys. I've selected all of these advertisers. So the very first one is Cure. Now, I'm going to tell you guys about this, uh, about Cure as being one of our sponsors.
If you're an athlete, you know that proper hydration is key to peak performance, but plain water can be boring and sports drinks can be filled with artificial ingredients and added sugars. That's why we love Cure. It's a clean and effective way to stay hydrated and perform at your best. I use it late in the day when I switch out of caffeine mode, specifically when I hit the pool or I go play tennis with my wife. I use Cure to help me stay hydrated. It helps me recover after a long day. Now, you guys may not know this, but I build things. Right now, I've been building several structures on our property out here. Among those is a new podcast studio space for myself. I do a lot of that work at night and into the wee hours. And I always have some cure with me to go into my aluminum water bottle. Hydration is not just about filling up my aluminum bottle with water. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and rehydrate quickly. Whether I'm building things or putting the podcast together or chasing these dogs that you sometimes hear in my studio up and down the trails to get them worn out, Cure Hydration is the way that I choose to go. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution or an ORS that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and to rehydrate quickly. The formula is made with all natural ingredients like coconut water powder and pink Himalayan salt. It's free from artificial flavors, from sweeteners and preservatives. Cure Hydration is vegan, gluten-free and non-GMO, making it a great option for anyone with dietary restrictions or preferences. The packets are convenient and easy to use. You just mix them with your water and you drink. They're perfect for on the go. They're perfect for travel. And anytime you need a quick and effective hydration boost, ready to combat dehydration, then you try Cure today and feel the difference for yourself. You can use code TRUECRIMEXS for 20% off your order. That's T-R-U-E-C-R-I-M-E-X-S. I have a link that I'm putting in the most recent episode show notes, and True Crime Access will get you 20% off. Our second sponsor for the show today is Laird. Now, Laird has a list of things that they want me to tell you about. They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality all-natural real food ingredients. All Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. They have all-natural whole food ingredients. And they contain naturally occurring MCTs made from coconut oil. There's no artificial flavors. There's no colors or additives. And there's no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. They want me to talk about my love of coffee. But the truth is, I don't do much with coffee. But let me tell you someone who does. My wife has to have a cup of coffee every day. Now, I've fallen off recently. But one of the big things that I've done since the beginning of our relationship is she used to go and get a Starbucks every morning. I have substituted that out by always trying to make her coffee. It's not going to be every single day of time from when I met her, but for the most part, almost every day, I make her coffee. I put her creamers together, and I make sure that she has a good way to start her day. So with Laird, he started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. 
He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. He gradually perfected this recipe for an epic cup of fuel, and he began sharing it with his friends in the surf community. I'm an ocean guy, so I saw this item, and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one out. Are you ready to feel more energized, more focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. And you can use our promo code at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Our offer code for this for Laird is going to be TrueCrimeXS. Pretty much everywhere except for Labrador Creations, if you use TrueCrimeXS, that will get you, uh, at Laird will get you 15% off. At some of the other places, I'll give you 20% off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. So the first one is, uh, the third one is Liquid IV. So let's talk about the real reasons that you need to hydrate. Late night TV binging, back-to-back Zoom meetings, going on a walk with your friends. Everyday hydration is not just for high-energy athletic endeavors. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's now available in sugar-free. This is years in the making, but Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free uses a proprietary zero-sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, but it's also got eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. Keep your daily routine exciting with three new flavors. They've got white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. I love all of these flavors, but I think that my favorite is probably the green grape. Uh, White peach I use as a secondary flavor, and lemon lime I leave here for my kids and my my wife. Uh, Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. They also partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50-plus countries around the world. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code TrueCrimeXS at liquidiv.com. And the last sponsor I want to tell you about is Zencaster. We are part of Zencaster's creative network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our first season. Uh, Meg and I experimented with a lot of different ways to put the podcast together. And the truth is Zencaster was an, an integral ingredient to us being able to bring you this show. It's so easy. It's now super easy. You can record a podcast with Zencaster. You can log in using your browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guests. You get to feel a sense of Zen knowing that Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you will always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. You sound your best. 
I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recordings. It removes those awkward pauses and conversation too. You can set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second of every episode. Zencaster is all in one. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are now over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place, and you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other ma- major destinations. Just go to Zencaster.com pricing and use my code TrueCrimeXS, and you're going to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. You can also check out the other plans they have available. I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So Zencaster.com slash pricing. The offer code is TrueCrimeXS, and it's time for you to share your story today. Uh, we are also adding New Era as a uh, sponsor for the show. New Era Cap is a headwear and apparel brand founded in 1920 in Buffalo, New York. Now, uh, I actually have some experience with New Era Caps. My dad and I have been through multiple iterations of baseball caps through the years. We collect different styles, different eras, and now my teenager has started his own cap collection and has several New Eras as the centerpieces. Our favorite teams may not be the same, but our outfits are all topped with the same new era ball caps. Uh, we love the quality and the ability to wear what the players are wearing. Not to mention new era is the leading headwear manufacturer with quality licensed products. You can support your favorite college or pro team in style from the official headwear provider for the MLB, NFL, and NBA. You can get a stylish accessory for your everyday ensemble and support True Crime Excess. Just shop the official headwear and get 15% off when you go to neweracap.com. That's N-E-W-E-R-A-C-A-P.com slash TrueCrimeXS. You can also use the code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's it. That's all you have to do. And that's 15% off your order using the promo code TrueCrimeXS.